Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Professor Toby Walsh is one of the world's leading researchers in artificial intelligence, and he's recently returned from the United Nations, where he was calling for the need to ban lethal autonomous weapons, otherwise known as killer robots. In his book, It's Alive, Professor Toby Walsh considers the broader societal and philosophical questions of what happens when robots start to think, and are they really going to take all of our jobs, and then ultimately, the planet. Hello, Toby. Thank you very much for joining me. My pleasure. Toby, you grew up watching Doctor Who, so therefore, is there any expectation you would grow up to be the person trying to save the Earth from killer robots with the United Nations, as you've been doing recently? Well, it came as a great surprise to me to be involved. I call myself a, an accidental activist. I, I, I didn't intend to get involved in the global campaign to, to ban lethal autonomous weapons or killer robots, as the media like to call them. But as a scientist working on the technology, I felt a real responsibility to inform the conversation and to warn of the risks. And I really do feel this is a this is a uh, an issue where there are immense risks. Um, all technologies can be used for good or for bad, and this is a technology like like any other technology where there are immense benefits to be had. But equally, we could use the technology for immense harm. We could use it to make warfare a much more terrible, terrible thing that um, weapons that would fall into the hands of terrorists, rogue states, many other people, and be used for, for immense evil. And, and therefore, I wanted to make sure that as a society we got the benefits without the risks. Could, could you perhaps explain what, what you're talking about here? Because the media likes to position it just purely as killer robots, and as you've openly said, you get a picture of the Terminator put on screen every time you talk about it. So what are we looking at? What are the concerns that you're finding? Yes, yeah, so killer robots is, is, is a nice evocative term, but unfortunately it evokes the wrong sorts of mental pictures. The, the picture of Terminator is, is the wrong one. You should, should be thinking of actually much simpler technologies. Actually, it's, it's stupid AI, not smart AI, that I'm really worried about. Um, your, your listeners probably have seen pictures of of predator drones flying above the skies of Afghanistan, Iraq. That's still not an autonomous weapon, not one where, they, where there's no human in, in the loop. There's still a soldier back in a container in Nevada who's actually making the final decision as to set off its missile. Um, but it's a small technical leap to remove the soldier, replace them by a computer, and have only a computer make those sorts of decisions. Um, that's actually technically possible today, and you don't have to take my word for it. The UK's Ministry of Defence have said that they think it's technically possible. In fact, they do already have a demonstrator. BAE Systems Tyrannus drone is believed to fly fully autonomously and to make its targeting decisions completely without the help of any human. Um, this would be, from a moral perspective, this would be us crossing a, a new line, I believe. It would change the character of war. It, it would increase the speed of war, increase the duration of war. These weapons would be able to fight 24-7. They'd be able to loiter over the battlefield for days at a time. Um, and they wouldn't be able to make the right sort of ethical distinctions that you're required to by international humanitarian law. And, and that's because essentially they're not programmed to have ethical safeguards? Is that the issue? Or is it more this algorithmic bias which you've talked about in the past? We, we don't know how today to, to program the right sort of ethical values. 
we will, I'm sure, in a decade or two decades or, or some number of decades time, work out how to do that because robots and, and intelligent machines are entering our lives very rapidly and they will be making decisions that have ethical consequences. And so even your autonomous car will be making perhaps life or death decisions when an accident's about to happen. So we'll have to work out how to build robots that, that capture our precise values. We don't know how to do that today. I'm pretty sure we will work out how to do it. But the machines that uh, the, the military, the, the arms companies will be selling very shortly won't have those um, ethical safeguards in. Um, and even when we can ha- program them to have those sorts of ethical safeguards, which, as I said, I'm sure what we'll get. The problem is, the challenge is that we know of no computer that can't be hacked. Um, and any ethical safeguards that we do put in will be removed. And there, there are plenty of bad actors out there who will have no qualms about removing any ethical safeguards and terrorists and rogue states who will then use these. And then these will be the perfect weapons of terror. Um, can you imagine a swarm of these weapons coming at you that have no regards, no mercy, no compassion? Um, and, and they will follow any order, however evil. You won't have to be persuaded to, to like you do now, have to persuade an army of people to do what your evil intent. They will follow any order. Uh, however evil that order might be. So they would be the perfect weapons for, for terrorists and rogue states to use against civilian populations. How does that fit in with artificial intelligence? Because there seems to be a level of confusion between autonomy, superintelligence, and then ultimately sentience as such. Yes, this doesn't require a huge amount of intelligence. To, it just means that the, the idea of autonomy, giving the ability of a machine to act independently in the real world, and the challenge today is actually that we're giving autonomy to, to quite stupid machines and they don't actually, aren't able to, in this case, to have the right moral distinctions. They aren't able to, to also, I mean, you, you mentioned um, about um, bias and so on. They won't really be adequate to, to, to be able to see, perceive the world well. I mean, I mean the interesting thing is the, the place that robots have turned up first is in factories. Um, and that's not surprising if you ask one of my robot friends, um, you know, where's the best place to put a robot? Well, it's in a very controlled environment where you control the environment, everything that goes in, you can put the robots in cages to protect humans from, from them. Um, so, so the last place you'd want to put a robot is actually in the, the most uncertain adversarial place that you can find, which is the, the battlefield. So, um, that's the last place we should be putting robots. Um, although this, I'd also like to point out to people, there's plenty of good things that we should be doing with robots and autonomy and AI in a military setting. I mean, no one should ever risk a life or limb clearing a minefield. That's a perfect job for a robot. And if it goes wrong, you blow it up a robot and you don't care. Um, and another example, getting supplies into some contested territory. Again, shouldn't risk anyone's life or limb flying those supplies in or, or driving those supplies in. That's a perfect job for a, an autonomous helicopter or an autonomous plane or an autonomous truck. Um, so there's, there's plenty of good things that can save people's lives, humanitarian and other. Um, that you could be using AI in a military setting, but but actually giving the decision to machines to decide who who lives and who dies is is very problematic from from both a technical, um, a legal sense. There's the question of accountability. I mean, mistakes happen, and mistakes always do happen in war. Then who is accountable? We we, we there is an, a real accountability gap, um, and and finally a moral one, which is I I really do think it's crossing a a moral line. We sanction very. Um, Warfare is a terrible thing. We, we sanction, uh, you know, th- uh, the killing of people 
Um, in part, I, I believe, because we're, we're risking our, our own lives. Um, it's, it's, you know, you come to that, that final moment in a, in, in, in a battle and it's, it's either the person in front of you or yourself at stake. Um, and, and so we allow people to kill, um, as a, as a, as a last resort in some sense and, and to, to hand that over to machines and not actually be risking our own lives. I, I think we'll make warfare too easy and change the moral character and the moral justification that we allow warfare to happen. Is that perhaps one of the key reasons or arguments used by governments, though, why they don't want to legislate against? Because they'd suggest that using robo- robots will protect and save lives because it may slow down that, that decision-making to send people in. Well, actually, well, I suppose it won't s- slow down at all. It'll speed up because they don't have to send people in. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there, there, are interesting, it's, it, there are interesting ethical arguments about for the need of, of autonomous weapons, and you, you hinted that one of them there, which is that, is that you know, well, maybe we can get our people out of the battlefield, not risk their lives. And there is some, there is some moral weight to that argument. Um, unfortunately, it, it's counterweighted by some, I think, actually much stronger arguments. Uh, one of which, again, you hinted at, which was that it will lower the barriers to war. War should always, I think, believe, be a last resort. It shouldn't be something where we can feel that we can fight it easily and clinically without risking our own side. And in fact, we've probably been dragged into conflicts in the, in the Middle East and elsewhere because of our thought, our mis- mistake that we can do that. Mm. Where does Australia sit right now on this issue? Uh, sadly, Australia is actually very for the use of autonomous, uh, autonomous weapons. I think largely we feel uh, the, the government position, I think, is one of supporting the US military uh, and being a good ally um, which is very disappointing because we have led the way uh, in many discussions around disarmament, around um, nuclear non-proliferation, around uh, biological and chemical weapons. We've actually uh, used our position uh, within the United Nations and now we're actually within the Security Council um, to lead these sorts of discussions, to, to, to actually make the world a safer place. And so it's, it's very disappointing that we've actually taken a rather negative start so far on this, on this topic. Uh, we do have a very large AI community. Um, very, um, we've been one of the leading nations in the world working on this, on this topic. Uh, five times world champion at robot soccer. So it, it's disappointing. And, you know, we have some of the most automated minds and ports in the world. We, we, we actually, we've led the way in this technology in many respects. So I do feel we have a responsibility to, to consider the risks. Um, and, and our government has, has been rather unhelpful. Um, despite the pressure that myself and, and many of my colleagues have, have, have put on the, on the government to, to actually, um, take a, I, I think what, you know, I think an inev- inevitable uh, decision, which is that we will ban these weapons. Um, it's inevitable in some sense because these will be weapons of mass destruction. Uh, you, you will have to scale warfare in, in a way that, that we can only do with other weapons of mass destruction. Um, well, you've, they, re- you've referred to it as the third revolution in warfare. People think weapons of mass destruction have to be indiscriminate, and many of them are. Uh, things like chemical weapons and biological weapons tend, tend to be rather indiscriminate. Um, but it's not actually required in the strict definition. We go and look at what the strict definition of a weapon of mass destruction is that's indiscriminate. These will be very discriminate weapons in some respects. Um, but they will be weapons of mass destruction because previously, if you wanted to do harm, you needed to have an army of people to do that for you. To, to point all the weapons and, 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 and at the other side. Now you won't. You'll need one programmer. And this allows you to scale warfare um, to an extent that we've never seen before. And as I mentioned before, there will also be weapons with 
much faster and, and longer duration than anything else we've ever seen. So you won't be able to defend yourself against them. They will fire much more quickly, much more precisely, much more accurately than any human can. You won't be able to defend yourself against them. So that will add up to mean that these will be weapons that will, will be able to, to inflict immense harm very quickly on the other side. And And whilst you can say, well, we will get you know our soldiers out of the battlefield, there's a certain truth to that, but that's only looking at one side of the equation. And I think you can't look at, you can't forget who you're killing. Um, it's, 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 it's very, um, short-sighted just to, to forget, to forget that actually people will be on the receiving ends of these weapons. And, and unfortunately these days it's often, uh, innocent civilians who are on the receiving end. Battle is, war is often fought in towns and cities where civilians are. And, and the, Ultimately, these weapons, if you introduce a weapon into the battlefield, you have to expect very shortly that your opposition will get hold of them one way or the other and that they will be using them against you and your civilians. And so I think it's very short-sighted to feel that we could just um, remove our, our, our military from the battlefield and have our robots fight. It's not going to be robots fighting robots. I was going to ask, it seems to be this ideal out there amongst people that this will almost be like a, a battle chess game, that you, you have one clear field of battle and you put up your robots on one side and I'll put up my robots on the other side and we'll have at it and whoever's the winner at the end of the day gets that piece of land. Yes, unfortunately, that would be nice. That would be sort of a, a nice idea, but that's not how war is fought. Mm. Um, war war is, 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 is now... is. Increasingly, wars of terror against civilian populations has been, unfortunately, since the First and Second World War, increasingly fought in amongst civilian populations. And it's not my robot against your robot. I mean, if it was that, we could we could actually decide it, not even with robots, decide it with a game of chess <laughs> or a game of tiddlywinks, you know, and you know, the best the best best player wins the the country. But that's not the sorts of, and the sorts of people we fight against these days are certainly not going to sign up to these sorts of rules. So. It would be nice um, if, if war could be decided that way, but I'm afraid it's not going to happen like that. Toby, what brought you into this field? Oh, I read too much science fiction as a young boy. <laughs> and, and science fiction, of course, is full of you know robots and intelligent machines, and that's part of our future, and for very good reason. You know, the robots are going to take the sweat; they are going to you know be able to improve the quality of our lives if we're careful about the choices we make. And, Right, that's why I wrote the book, really, just to to say to people, let's stop, stop and think about where we're going and make the right choice. Because I think there's this mistake. People people think the future's fixed. And it's something you're just going to have to adapt to. It's the sort of thing that you read in my book or read in science fiction and not realize, actually, no, the future is the product of the decisions we make today. And we get to choose the future. It's not all decisions are, are necessary. The technology can be used in... In good ways, it can be used in autonomous cars to save lives, and it can be used in bad ways. It can be used in a Thomas War and, and take people's lives. And they're about the choices we get to make, and that's, that's, that was the point of writing the book, was to, say, to inform the conversation, to tell people you know, where we're at, um, where, how quickly maybe machines are going to be smart, and, and to flag some of the things I think where we should be starting to have conversations about. How should it change our society? One of the things that comes through very clearly in the book, though, is that with the supposed threat of AI and robots taking over jobs, probably one of the most secure jobs is actually an AI scientist. <laughs> well, there's an argument. It's the last job, right? You know, <laughs> once this job has been automated, then by definition, all other jobs have been automated. <laughs> so 
But no, no. I mean, but, but actually, I'm mean, interesting. It's it's true. Scientist is a is in general not just an AI scientist, but scientist in general is a pretty secure job because we're not going to run out of knowledge to discover, and we already use a lot of tools, some computational already, to help us do more science, do science quicker. So it just lets us lift our game. It's a very open-ended job. But the other, interesting enough, I mean, the other sorts of jobs that are very safe are some of the oldest jobs. Um, you know, so I, I like to, you know, give an example to people is, is carpenter. One of the oldest jobs on the planet, yet one of the safest, because we're going to still appreciate things that have been touched by the human hand. We'll pay them extra for things where we can see that there's human touch to them. One of the um, least safe jobs on the planet is probably one of the newest jobs on the planet, being an Uber driver. I mean, Uber already trialing autonomous taxis, and, and they'll be getting rid of their drivers as soon as they possibly can because they're the most expensive thing in the car. You've positioned in the book that uh, autonomous vehicles will also not only improve our lifestyle because it'll give access, uh, mobility to the disabled, to the elderly, to the young, but it should also decrease the number of road inc- incidents. But doesn't that have a flow-on effect that therefore there may also be a lack of, say, for example, kidney donations? So how does that circle work? Yes, yes, it's it's one of the interesting things. We should always think about not just the primary effects, but the the secondary and other unexpected effects. I mean, I was I've been doing some project actually with with the Organ Tissue Authority here in Australia, looking at how we can improve the mechanisms used to match kidney patients. I was went to a meeting with the one of the leading transplant surgeons, and I said to him, you know, you realise it's going to get much worse. And he said, what? He said, I said, what? The roads are getting safer. He said, yeah, we're getting uh, fewer and fewer organs and the organs we are getting are getting older and older. I said, yes, but with autonomous cars, you know, the number of road deaths will go to almost zero. And so that ready supply of young organs is going to dry up. Fortunately for, for organ transplants, there are alternatives. In about 20 years' time, they're going to have either xenotransplants, transplants out of pigs, or, or stem cells. They'll be able to grow grow your own organs. So Actually, that problem will be fixed. But it does highlight that we should think about the the secondary effects that these technologies can have. I mean, another one for autonomous cars is that is that already car manufacturers are looking at designing um, office spaces in your cars. You're not going to have to do. You're not going to have to be driving. You're not even going to have to be paying attention and say to get to full autonomy, level five, as it's called, autonomy. Um, and so your car will be a, a space in which you can work. But that means your commuting time to the office now is is valuable time. You can use it to catch up on your emails or, or read your memos, or whatever you like. But that has a that has a knock on effect itself, which means now that's not wasted time as it is today. That means maybe people are prepared to live further away from their work. That means if you're a real estate agent in the country. Maybe you're going to have a boom in sell, selling real estate in the country because people are more prepared to, to live further away. Um, and maybe that's going to hasten urban sprawl. So there's all these interesting knock-on effects that we need to mm. think about to, to work out, well, you know, how do we make sure that, you know, these um, terrible inflated prices that we see in the inner cities don't, don't now spread out to, to the countryside? You make mention in the book about how AI will revolutionise healthcare, and you've, you've made some certain or significant assertions about what's going to happen to my toilet. <laughs> well, yeah, but if you go to Japan, you can already see this happening today, where 
where toilets are already fitted with sensors that um, help to monitor yeah, your vital signs. But, I mean, increasingly, we are connecting ourselves up to devices, um, smartwatches and Fitbits and the like that monitor our blood pressure, our heartbeat, um, and, and other vital signs will, will be measured. Your The camera on your smartphone will be looking at the back of your eyeball, will be looking at your skin for melanonia, and there'll be more and more sensors that we'll be plugging in and connecting ourselves to, which will give um, a continuous snapshot of our state of health, which will be much more informative than the snapshots we see today, which is, you know, once a year when you go see your doctor and he, uh, he or she, um, you know, measures your blood pressure and takes, your, takes, takes various vitals of you, we'll have that done 24-7. And it will be literally the case that you're, you wake up in the morning and your, your smartphone says, I notice your blood pressure is not so good today, today, B. I, I've already booked you in with an appointment with your doctor. <laughs> now, there is something I do want to take issue with you about your predictions for 2050, which you make in the book. And there's a series of them which are all very positive about how it's going to change our life, driving, doctors, movies and HR, etc. But you do suggest that Germany are going to be able to win the World <laughs> Cup. Yes. Well, so this is the prediction that... Uh, that, that um, well, we already have a robot soccer competition, and as I as I hinted at earlier, Australia actually um, punches well above its weight. We're five times world champion in this annual competition, um, and invariably, we actually we're playing the German robot team in the final. They're they're, they're also very good. Um, but the expectation in this competition is that by 2050, the robot team will be able to beat the human world champion robot soccer players at their own game. Um, and so my prediction is just gluing that together with the, with the prediction that, of course, in 2050, the country most likely to be the human world champion is going to be Germany. They have, what, four or five times they've won now the World Cup? I should point out that my wife's German, so I do have some skin in the game as well. <laughs> um, I'd like to come down to, to look at the, the nature of education in regards to artificial intelligence. As you've said, Australia is punching well above its weight in leading in artificial intelligence in the study and the research that we're doing. But you, last year, I think it was, you contributed to the Future Frontiers Education for an AI World, which was from the New South Wales Department of Education publication. And in that, though, you said that one of the major problems we're facing is that we have a sea of dudes problem. I was wondering if you could expand on that. Yes. Uh, so this was a, a phrase um, introduced to talk about the fact that it's sadly an incredibly male-dominated field. We, we have, you know, something like 10% participation of, of, of women, not the 50% that we should have. Um, and if you look at the statistics, as soon as, as soon as girls can start selecting subjects, at school, they start selecting away from maths, computer science, and physics, especially from away from computer science. Um, and, and it only gets worse once you enter into university and then enter into um, postgraduate education and, and then enter um, and look at uh, amongst my colleagues in the faculty. Um, this is hugely problematic for a number of reasons. One is that, is that we, well, we, first of all, we have a shortage of people working in the field, um, which would easily be solved if we could double the, uh, the size of people by including women. Um, it, it's hugely, so it's hugely wasteful of talent, but also um, means that, that it's easy for, for the technology to, to have a, a male bias. 
Um, and there are plenty of, of, of troubling examples along this line. I mean, when the iWatch was introduced, um, they introduced a health kit to, to so developers could, could monitor you know, various physical uh, vital signs, your heartbeat and so on. And one of the things that was missing from this was, was any measurement of, of menstrual cycle of, of a woman. And yet it has a huge great impact upon upon your on your on your physical health and understanding what and when you should be doing things um and so you know the 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 technology was not catering for half the world's population which is which is terrible so this is this is another example of algorithmic bias in its truest form just by the nature of who's programming the algorithms yes i mean this was just pure pure oversight and, and you know it was obviously a um, you know, too many men in the team developing the technology, not thinking um, as they should be that, that we need to develop it with with half of the world's population in mind. Um, and increasingly, as computers uh, interact with us more and more, we need you know not just the viewpoint of of the female half of the population, but the viewpoint of of you know the handicapped part of the population, the viewpoints of of the Aboriginal part of the population, the viewpoints of of all these, um, uh, of all the groups of, uh, that are going to be have the technology um, impacting upon their lives. I'd like to come back to the issue of chess itself, because the the history of AI development seems to be informed by Kasparov and Deep, um, not Deep Blue, Deep Blue, no, yeah, Deep Blue, Deep Blue, Deep Blue. Deep Blue. So, could you perhaps talk through some, perhaps how AI has developed over the last few years, some of those defining moments that you say, well, okay, well, this is how we've got to where we are today. So one of those defining moments was the one that you, you hinted at in 1997 when Gary Kasparov, the world's chess champion, one of the, in fact, probably one of the best chess players ever to have been alive, um, you know, he became world chess champion at the youngest age. I think he was 18 or so when he, when he became world chess champion. And when he retired out of competitive chess, 20-some years later, he was still the best player on the planet. Um, but he had the misfortune to be alive at the moment yeah. that um, computers were actually going to beat humans, the best humans on the planet at playing chess. When when Gary Kasparov lost to IBM's Deep Blue, uh, the, there was a, an article in the New York Times, rather consoling article, saying, well, it's okay, you know, um, we haven't really been beaten by the machines yet. Artificial intelligence won't be succeeding until we solve this much more challenging game, the ancient Chinese strategy game of Go, which has been played for the thousands of years. It's probably the oldest strategy game on the planet and has much greater complexity in some sense than chess. Um, in, in, in chess, there's only about 20-odd moves you can make at any one move, and in one point in the game. Uh, and then from those 20 moves, there's another 20 moves. That's 400 possibilities and so on you can can you can consider the, the possibilities and and it's true that ibm's deep blue was was rather brute force in its approach to solving the game it did you know explore a lot of possible moves it didn't use much in the way of intuition although it did throw off kasparov at one moment when it sacrificed one of its own pieces it did it was it sacrificed a piece when it was in a winning position and and kasparov at the time uh, actually thought it was being incredibly smart it turns out when they actually analysed the game that actually it was a bug in the program <laughs> and that Kasparov was just being intimidated by this unexpected move. Um, it does go to show that we, as humans, we're easily fooled by uh, machines making decisions into thinking perhaps they're more intelligent than they are. Mm. 
Um, but anyway, we come forward 20 years in time. We're, we're now playing the game of Go. Um, instead of being 20 moves to consider each, each point, there's, you're playing on a 19 by 19 board. So there's nearly 400 moves you can consider at any, any one point, 400 different squares you can put down. And it's much harder game to play, much more about the intuition, about looking at a board and feeling whether you're winning or not. It's not the game of chess. You've got all these different pieces. You've got queens and knights and rooks. And just, you know, just adding up the values of the pieces actually gives you a good idea of whether you're winning or not. In Go, all the pieces are, are the same. They're all black or white stones. It's more about subtle ideas about your position and control of territory. Much harder. It takes a lifetime of learning to, to understand to be able to play the game well. So it was, it was, it really was a, quite an impressive moment, um, when humans got beaten. And as, as often the case with these things, humans got very soundly beaten quite quickly by the machines. And how do they do that? I mean, it's, it's quite interesting to think about how they did that because it's not by programming. You, we couldn't program a machine to play better than a human because in some sense, if we, if we could, well, we'd know how to play better ourselves and we'd just be able to, you know, implement that strategy ourselves so it's not it's not because anyone programmed them who could play better chess or better go in, in most cases the people programming these these computers were were intermediate level players themselves they, they weren't expert players themselves so th- so then how does the machine learn that's the group that's the interesting question they they learn by playing themselves that's the great thing about games that makes easy easy uh, training zone to play in is is that you can play the program against itself it turns out that the, the programs are very slow learners. I mean, AlphaGo, this program that learned to play Go, played millions of games of Go. And if, if one of your listeners only played Go the whole of their life, that's the only thing they ever did. They woke up in the morning from the moment they were born, started playing Go till they fell asleep at night and did that the whole of life. You would not have time to play that number of games of Go. So AlphaGo is actually quite a slow learner, but eventually... It gets to to have played more, seen more games of Go, and learnt more about the game of Go than any human could possibly do, and so not surprisingly, it actually gets better than any human. But but in the competition against the Go master, it did lose. Yes. So, so how did that happen? Well, the, it did lose in the in in the in the first in the first competition, and the second competition now they're, they're winning a hundred nils. <laughs> So that's why the Chinese have called it a go god. But but you're right. In the first competition against Lee Sedol in in March 2016, um, who's the Korean master, uh, one of the best players on the planet, uh, Lee Sedol did win the fourth game, which was a huge great victory for mankind. People don't really remark about this. They think it was a huge great loss for ma- mankind that we no longer it was best of five, and so actually by the fourth game we'd already lost three games. So mankind had already lost, but. Lisa Dole won the fourth game, which was a great victory because if you talk to Go masters, they're saying actually the program was playing a new type of Go, was playing moves that had never been seen before, especially in the opening part of the game that that Go masters had never considered were interesting, useful, valuable moves to make. So it was actually taking us to new places in the game, a new style of Go. And yet Lisa Dole learned enough about this new style of playing Go in three games, that on the fourth game he was able to beat AlphaGo, which shows a big difference still between machines and computers today, which is that, is that humans are very quick learners. You can learn in three games. AlphaGo play millions of games to learn those sorts of things, and so machines still are very slow learners. And so we've, that's, 
one thing that we've still got to do to get to, to true artificial intelligence is that we've got to make machines that can learn quickly like we do. I mean, it's it's baked into our DNA. You know, if we're being chased by a, you know, a wolf in the forest or something or a bear in the forest, we don't have a lot of time to learn. We have to learn from single examples. So we're very quick learners compared to computers today. Yeah, so we have to adjust our expectations of these developments because there there is a broad expectation through the, the masses, shall we say, a, a less informed approach, which is if it can beat everybody at Go, the, tomorrow it's going to get bored of playing Go and then take over the rest of the world or something like that. Like it's suddenly this mass expansion from one task extremely well done. So do we have to adjust our expectations of what a neural network or a program would be? We we do. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's a natural human response. You know, if, if I meet someone and they can play Go well, I think, well, they must be very smart. That's a reasonable assumption with human, but it's not a reasonable assumption with a computer. Um, it literally can only play Go. It would have to be retrained to play chess. They've, they've done that with AlphaGo now. But it would probably need a different type of program to play poker. Because poker's got some other things in there. They've got uncertainty, human psychology is the person bluffing. Lots of other things you have to do that you wouldn't be able to do with a, with a Go-playing or a chess-playing program. So, yes, we're very quick to suppose, well, that's an intelligent activity. It can do all the other intelligent things. No, it can't. And then the other thing that we're, that we're quick to attribute to machines, which they don't have, is any sentience. They have no desires of their own. They have no consciousness. AlphaGo is not going to wake up in the morning and say, humans, you're no good at Go, which is true. Compared to AlphaGo, we are no good at Go anymore. Um, you know, I'm going to win some money at online poker. And it's certainly not going to wake up and say, you know, look, humans, you're no good at online poker. I'm going to take over the planet because that's going to be more fun. <laughs> it's going to do one thing. It's going to play Go. It doesn't. In fact, it doesn't even know it's playing Go. It's got one number. It's probability estimate that it's going to win the game. And it will only ever try to maximize that probability estimate. So if we did, if it did truly assume sentience, it'd actually be an extremely boring robot at that point then. That's the one thing it does. Well, that's the one thing it does. But we don't know how we would ever achieve sentience. We don't even know where the machines would ever have sentience. I mean, it's one of these really interesting fundamental questions why, why AI is a really fascinating science is that we don't know if we're going to build machines that will have any sentience. We, certainly the machines we build today have nothing. They have no sentience, no, no consciousness, nothing like that at all. Well, should we? How about that as a question? Should we be aiming towards sentience? Well, that's, that's a fantastic question. Um, there are arguments for and against. I mean, the argument against is that it will make, it will be very convenient if machines never become sentient um, because then we won't have to worry about them. If they become sentient, we probably have to give them rights. You know, other sentient beings, you know, higher level mammals and the like, we're starting to give rights because we realize that they can suffer and they have pain and, and like us, then, then they deserve some fundamental rights. Um, so it will be a convenient break for us, for mankind, if machines never had any sentience and then we can torture them to do the most dull, dangerous, difficult, dirty things in our lives and not have to worry. Mm. Um, on the other hand increasingly we're giving decisions over to machines where we're worried about the morality of those decisions, that, that they may have you know, life or death consequences. And so having the machine have some sort of high-level consciousness or some, or some executive that, that thinks more carefully about these things and reflects on their actions and the consequences of their actions and so on may be very useful. In fact, it, it may be that you can't get truly 
ethical behavior out of a machine. And yes, it does have something which starts to sound a bit like consciousness, which is his ability to reflect on, on the consequence of his actions and its role in the world and so on. This increasingly sounds a lot like a definition of consciousness. Um, and maybe you need that to be able to act ethically. There must be a part of you, though, as a scientist, that, that, that you feel almost an urge to drive towards that, though. Isn't that an end game, even if it's at the back of your mind? It's, we, there are three ways that we may end up with machines that may be conscious. Uh, one is that we program it explicitly. We actually set out as a goal, as you're suggesting. Um, I know a few of my colleagues who are really sort of setting out as that, setting out with that as their explicit goal. Um, in part, I think, because of some of these problems that it would arise if we do sudden, if we do in some Frankenstein sense, make machines that have some sort of consciousness. But it may happen to us in one of two other ways without our, you know, our, it being an explicit goal. It may happen because it becomes an emergent phenomenon. We plenty of emergent phenomenon in our, in our lives. In fact, our intelligence seems to be an emergent phenomenon out of, out of our brains. Our consciousness is an emergent phenomenon, it seems, out of our, out of our complex brains. Um, so it may be that eventually we just build more and more complicated um, you know, computer systems, AI systems, and eventually they, they somehow some, at some point become spontaneously um, conscious. So it may be just a, a, a phenomenon that emerges like that. Um, and, and the third way may be, um, again, one of learning. Um, because it seems, if you study young children, that they become more and more conscious of their environment. When a young baby is born, it's not clear that they even know they have toes. And, you know, there's that wonderful moment when it's obvious that they've discovered that they have feet and that their feet, uh, you know, their toes that they're now wiggling are theirs. Um, and they become more and more aware that they're embedded in a world and there are other, other people besides themselves in this world that they have to think about. So, so it seems perhaps that, you know, our own consciousness is something that does, something that we do, it does deepen at least as, as, we, um, as, as we learn as, as young children. So, so again, maybe it's something, again, that machines might learn over time. You've suggested that our understanding of consciousness or at least intelligence and the application of that for robots will need to be changed just as it has for flight, for example, that we have aeroplanes that aren't based around birds. You know, um, we don't we don't have aeroplanes that take off by flapping their wings. I was wondering if you could expand on that, perhaps, as far as the perception of what we will need to develop for the future in robot intelligence. Yes, it's. When we talk about artificial intelligence, people sort of focus on the eye, the intelligence, and, and, and they don't necessarily think too much about the A, the artificial. And I think it's actually, it's not, it's not the best name perhaps for the field in the world, but other, other names have been proposed over time. It's a name that's stuck, and, and, but it has one very good thing about it, which it does remind us that the sort of intelligence that we might build in machines might be quite artificial, quite different the sort of intelligence we have it may not for example it, it may be what david chalmers the australian philosopher calls a zombie intelligence it, it may be highly intelligent in a sort of spock-like way but without any consciousness we we don't know whether consciousness and intelligence are are inexplicably linked together um it, it would be hard to have um, consciousness it seems without intelligence but maybe you can have intelligence without consciousness 
And AI may be a proof of that. All we know that we eventually do build machines that are highly intelligent, make really smart decisions, but lack completely um, consciousness. Consciousness may be a biological thing. It may be something that you just can't make in silicon. It may be, there may be something unique to our biology. Um, and, and another example is um, weather. You know, we could, we could simulate the weather inside a computer. Absolutely perfect. You could have total fidelity and it would, it would tell you exactly everything that, you know, about where, what the weather is going to do um, maybe. And, uh, but you would never be wet inside the computer. Just, and so, you know, consciousness is like the wetness. Maybe, maybe it's something that you can simulate. You can get all the right answers out, like the weather, all the right pressures and temperatures and wind speeds. But you would, and it would tell you where it was going to be wet, but you would never actually be physically wet. Yes, I can tell you what rain is, <laughs> but I can't tell you how it feels. Yes. yes. So consciousness might be something like that. And so maybe something that, you know, ultimately is only ever in our biology and ever in our silicon. Mm. This is a podcast in which we talk to writers about writing, and you've been published extensively throughout your long and varied career. But according to the Oxford Report, of which you take specific issue with at times in your in your book and certainly publicly, it suggests that only three point eight percent of writers are going to be replaced by robots. Should writers be worried at all? No, writers shouldn't <laughs> be worried at all. Um, it's true that if you're a journalist writing short form, if you're writing, you know, report about, um, some financials that just hit the wire or a, a football match, you can get a program today that can write a paragraph that's quite plausible. And, and in fact, you know, there are companies that sell these programs and they write, you know, there are some press agencies that use these for, to write a significant number of, of short form reports. But, but when you look at long form writing, We've still got a huge way to go before we can get computers to write the sort of quality of text that humans can write very easily. And even if we can, and at some point I imagine we probably can get computers to write things as well as humans because we'll teach them, just we'll show them enough examples. I don't think we'll care. We'll care about things that speak to the human experience written by other humans. And so maybe we will be able to you know, write a program that, that can write a you know prize-winning novel, but it won't speak to us. It won't it won't talk about love and death and all the things that matter to us from a human perspective, because they won't have our humanity. They won't they won't be machines that that love and die and and do all those things like us. So we won't care. Well, then, Toby, as an author and a scientist, <laughs> it sounds like you have bulletproofed yourself for the future. Uh, well, I didn't intend to say that like that. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a scientist, but, but it's great fun actually being an author as well. Um, and, and it's, it's a bit like teaching, you know, you have to try and explain things to people. And, um, and I hope, you know, I hope people, um, enjoy the book. I hope, I hope it helps inform the conversation, the really important conversation I think we should be having as a society about how we use the technology and how we make it, how we use it to make our lives better. Toby, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for making the time today. My pleasure. And Professor Toby Walsh's book, It's Alive, Artificial Intelligence from the Logic Piano to Killer Robots, is in stores and online right now. He has another book coming out later this year, but he refused to tell me the title, so I can't help you there. However, you can follow Toby on Twitter at Toby Walsh, and you can follow us on Twitter at ConversationsWW. 
You can also like us on Facebook because apparently that does something. Or you can also leave us a review on iTunes, which would be greatly appreciated as that helps people to find the show, including all the killer robots. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very, very, very much for listening.